You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, ain't shit going on this week. Ain't shit going on. So uh, frequent listeners to the show will understand how this works. We're going to go ahead and uh, dispense with the normal format of the podcast, not do our typical three rounds, and uh, we'll just dive into listener mail for the uh, the entirety of the hour and change here. We're going to have Sir Nigel Longstock stop by somewhere in the middle of the show, lead us in uh, a game of Master Tweet Theater. No telling how that will go. Uh, you got anything to add that you want to throw out there before we start reading these uh, these these mail questions? I noticed you didn't have any kind of snappy comments about texts you'd gotten regarding rec league hockey this week, huh? Yeah, I decided no one, I decided share, no, huh? no one cares. No, no thoughts on this Out, week. Outside the bubble of our audience. This exposes you for what you are, Chad Dundas. See, when, when the Bulldogs go out there and lose, when they give it their best effort but still come up short, you know, then you want to tell the whole world about it. But when the Bulldogs go out there against their hated rivals featuring your friend, and we we pull out a win, and Ben Folks scores a goal. Oh, then it's radio silence. Nobody wants to hear about it. Then I see. I just feel like our listenership is probably dealing with a little bulldog fatigue at this point. Interesting that you feel like that now and not last week. Well, I mean, these things build up over time. Indeed, they do, sir. Ben, it- we got a lot of really long emails this week. People like to jump on the ain't shit going on bandwagon. Just send us their dissertations. Well, you know what? This is the week to do it. Because this is the week we have time to devote to reading your long-ass question. First question this week comes to us from David Lotteray. He writes, Should we be cheering for second-tier MMA promotions like Bellator or whatever World Series of Fighting is turning into? Or should we hope for UFC supremacy so that all the best fighters are under one banner? I tend to like rooting for the underdog, but can you imagine going back to the days of the AFL and NFL or ABA alongside the NBA? I doubt too many people want to see that, but that's essentially what we have in MMA, except there are multiple organizations fighting for second place. I think if I had my druthers, there would there would be one organization that the top fighters all universally flock to, and the other organizations can be developmental leagues. I fear this won't happen now that the UFC has this huge debt to pay, and they aren't likely to start paying their fighters head and shoulders above the competition. Makes me wonder if in a few years we find ourselves with more of a three-headed monster where the top talent just hops back and forth, each side claiming to have the real welterweight champ of the world. What needs to change in order for the UFC to acquire all the talent? Better pay? Dana White exiting? An act of God? Okay, I understand the thinking here from David Lauderette that, hey, if you split the fighters among a bunch of different organizations, then it's bad because you don't get to see all the possible matchups you might otherwise like to see. And that's why, like the analogy, the AFL-NFL analogy, the problem, though, is that the NFL is a league where you can have one league for professional football players, and yet it does not limit the, or at least severely limit, the bargaining power of any professional football player hoping to play in that league because there's still 32 teams all potentially bidding for your services. So you can still, you know, there's still competition in there for your services as an athlete. Whereas if you just had the UFC, 
And that was the only organization there was, yeah, it might be good for the fans. We'd get to see every possible matchup we could ask for. But then the UFC has less and less incentive to pay a fair wage to the fighters. Yeah, um, I also understand where David Lauderay is coming from. And I think if you view the sport only through the lens of being a fan, which most people should probably do that since they are only fans, uh, it, it makes rational sense to think that having all of the talent in one organization would be for the best just because uh, you'd get to see all the matchups you want and there wouldn't be any outliers of, of guys like Fedor Emelianenko who are running around, uh, you know, not arguably not fighting the top talent in the world through a certain part of their career. Uh, but I also think, Ben, that there's something to be said, not only for competition in the marketplace, which I think is what you were talking about a little bit there, uh, but also having numerous MMA products available to fans. Uh, you know, we when we hearken back to the days of, of Pride versus the UFC, when those were the top two organizations in the world, uh, I think we have this romanticized idea that it would have been awesome if uh, Fedor Emelianenko and, and, and in his prime uh, Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira and all those guys were over in the UFC fighting it out with, with uh, you know, Randy Couture and uh, Tim Sylvia and the guys who were, you know, leading the uh, UFC, especially heavyweight division at the time. You pretty much named all the guys right, right there. <laughs> I didn't say Andre Arlovsky. Okay, that's the only guy of, you didn't name. He jumped around a little bit. Uh, but But, like, if we could go back and do it over again... I'm, I, would you rather have all the guys in the UFC if it meant that that was basically the only product that you had to go to as a fan? Because when I look back on it now, I kind of appreciate the diversity of the two models, which yes. you kind of see today with the UFC. And then you've got like Ryzen Fight Federation and you've got uh, the eternal 24-hour loop that is uh, MMA in Russia. Uh, and, and I'm glad that those things are all out there just to, just so that we don't, it's, so it's not all face the pain all the time. Yeah, no, I understand. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that there's, you know, the contrast between pride and the UFC is a great example of how basically the same sport can still serve wildly different needs, uh, for the same fans. And I think that you do see that going on because of the nature of the, the situation. I mean, look at world series of fighting, rebranding itself to try to be something different, because everybody recognizes you can't just be the UFC light and hope to really be successful that way. You look at what Bellator is doing. You know, we make fun of it sometimes, the the seniors tour kind of approach that Bellator is taking um, or just the, the weird shit approach that Bellator takes sometimes with the tentpole events. But that's an effort to try to be, do something different, offer something different. And I do think that in the long run, a few missteps aside, that's ultimately a good thing. But I also can understand how Man, it would have been awesome to see Fedor and Randy Couture. Like, that would have been cool. I, you know, the part of the this question, you know, laying out a vision of, like, a three-headed monster of MMA, I mean, I guess one dream scenario would be that they all were around as influential, that one wasn't the dominant force so far ahead of the other two. Then there would be an incentive for all three of them to try to organize some, you know, semi-regular cross-brand, uh, cross-promotion uh, to get their fighters together and figure out a way to all make money together. But when one is, when the number one is so far ahead of two and three, as is the case right now, that's, there's just not a lot of reason for that to happen. Agreed. You want to do the next question? Sure. This one comes to us, again, from the Cheeseburger Walrus, 
writes, since their hashtag ain't shit going on this week, how about we talk a little about Justin Gaethje? He's finally signed with the UFC and will likely debut this summer slash fall. Who's your top pick for his debut fight? I'll suggest Edson Barboza in a five-round fight night main event. Barboza with his lethal limbs and signature leg kicks, plus Gaethje's heart slash durability, sounds good to me, but what say you? You got a little frog in your throat? Yeah. Going on over there? I'm getting over a little bit of a cold. Just kind of limping through this. We got a lot of reading to do today. Listen, man. Don't make it any harder than it has to be. I'm wasting my voice talking to you about this right now. Thing about Justin Gaethje coming over from the World Series of Fighting slash Professional Fighters League, Ben. Getting while they're getting us good, you yeah, might say. No kidding. In more ways than one, I think, for Justin Gaethje. Uh, he's one of these guys that you almost can't tumble him bass-ackward into a bad matchup. Throw Justin Gaethje out there with anybody, and you're probably going to have a wild cartoon slugfest uh, with hillbilly haymakers and, and everything but a guy getting clubbed over the head with a whiskey bottle and then stabbed in the neck with broken shards. Like, you're going to have extreme violence from, from start to finish with Justin Gaethje. And frankly, I love the idea of Justin Gaethje against Edson Barbosa. Uh, and I would throw out almost anyone else in the, in the lightweight division. How about your boy, Raging Al Iaquinta? Ooh! Yeah. Nothing wrong with that one. How about Michael Chiesa, the Maverick? Yes, would watch. Would watch, right? Nate Diaz, I mean, come on. Now we're just... <laughs> we're dreaming a now little bit too big. Now I'm just putting icing on top of it. Uh, here's my concern. What if Justin Gaethje comes over here doing his wild-ass, super aggressive, just going to wade right into the, the teeth of your offense kind of thing, and it's like a... Uh, like he ends up like Will Brooks or somebody, like where he gets kind of soundly defeated a few times... People learn to use that style against him, which you can see that there are opportunities to do that. The, the very same things that make him a really, really fun fighter to watch also give uh, his opponent some opportunities uh, if they're willing and able to exploit those. What if he comes over here? On one hand, you know, the UFC would like to be able to say, hey, this just proves, again, UFC is where the best fighters are. But it would it not be also just kind of sad to see that happen? Well, you'll recall uh, at the beginning of this answer, I said Justin Gaethje was getting out of the World Series of Fighting slash Professional Fighters League while the getting was good in more way than one, right? <laughs> and I think you're right to uh, reference Will Brooks. It just seems like, and not that I doubt the talent or skill uh, or ability of, of Justin Gaethje. I'm, I'm super pleased to have him in the UFC as long as that deal gets finalized. I'm not sure if it did or not, Uh but it's looking like it's going to go that way. He'll be a great addition to the 155-pound division in the UFC, which is already stacked. On the other hand, just by bringing up Will Brooks, I think that you reference that this is just kind of how it goes, right? You get a a, a champion or a, a star, quote-unquote star, from another organization. They come over to the UFC, and even if they eventually do end up crafting good careers for themselves, there's usually, or I mean, there typically has been an Eddie Alvarez-style letdown at the at the beginning of the career or at the beginning of the UFC run, uh, and I can totally see that happening to Justin Gaethje, uh, almost as a product of the way he fights right. more than anything else. Because uh, just take Edson Barbosa as again as an example. You go out there and you want to have uh, a wild in-your-face slugfest with Edson Barbosa. He will be your huckleberry, and chances are uh, you're leaving yourself open to get knocked out. True, and I don't. I guess it's just that I've enjoyed what Justin Gaethje has been doing for so long over there at World Series of Fighting that I feel like almost, like, I don't want to say that the UFC should protect him 
when they come over because that's definitely that you know cannot argue in favor of that. But I would like to see the UFC realize, and I I think that this will happen. That realize what it is that makes him a really fun guy, um, and choose an opponent stylistically, especially at first, uh, to bring that out or at least enable that. Like something like I mean. Justin Gaethje versus like Paul Felder or something. Somebody where it's not like they're not super high up on the ladder. They'll give you a fun fight though, and it will be a good kind of first uh, dipping your toe into the waters of the UFC. Um, maybe it's just my own perception about World Series of Fighting, but I don't feel the need to have Justin Gaethje dropped right into the top of the division right away. Yeah. Uh, again, though, I mean, Dustin Poirier, Benil Dariush, Kevin Lee, Michael Johnson. You just start reading off names, and these are all guys in the lightweight top fifteen. There's not one of the guy, one person that I just mentioned where you'd be like, "Nah, don't think so." True, and part of that is that this division is talent rich and gives you a lot of opportunities there. Next question this week comes to us from Vern Russell. He writes, "I don't care for Mike Perry, but I enjoy watching him fight. How important do you think the heel role is to the UFC right now, seeing that not many guys are doing it?" Uh, so Ben, this gets to the heart of an interesting question about Mike Perry, who is a guy that we've discussed on this show in the past and is a guy in the UFC who seems to have, uh, some checkers, some checkers in the past. Although I don't know that it's really, that anyone's really gotten fully to the bottom of it yet. Uh, but it seems like maybe Mike Perry had some stuff going on or has done some things that have made him look like a disreputable fellow, a fellow that you might not want to cast your lot in. Uh, as a number one supporter. But I think that brings up an interesting question, and that is how much does or should morality or whether or not you find someone to be a distasteful character impact not only how you view sports, but even to push it to, to what I would say is probably the extreme fringe of this example, uh, how much you it impacts what you think about professional fighters who, by and large, uh, are not Boy Scouts all the way around. True. Well, I think it is important to draw a distinction between just, I don't like this guy, he said some things I don't like, he, he might believe some things I don't like, uh, and this guy has actually physically hurt people, uh, like in the past. Like, I think that we we do need to draw a distinction between, like, all right, this guy might be a racist based on, like, social media posts, and that is different from, this guy has convictions for domestic violence. Right. Uh, and I think sometimes we we're in danger of just kind of lumping people together as just like people, the MMA uh, bubble community has decided are bad um, and not, not drawing, uh, you know, shades of gray of bad. Uh, and Mike Perry, I mean, for one thing, I don't know if Mike Perry counts as a heel, right? Because I think the, the, I think of the heel role as somebody who, if they don't know that they're doing it, they are at least kind of living it. Whereas Mike Perry, if you never, if you never got onto Twitter or Instagram or read like MMA websites, like would you? What would you think of Mike Perry other than like you would be baffled by why anyone thought it was a good idea to get his nickname tattooed on his face? Uh, maybe you see God's gift on the guy's belly and you think maybe you and him would not have a whole lot to talk about sitting there over a, a plate of a blooming onion at the Outback Steakhouse. But you know, sure, fine, you can still enjoy his fighting. Like, yeah, I think that there's some heelish stuff going on with Mike Perry's demeanor with the break dancing in the cage after he destroys Jake Ellenberger via standing elbow and, and like you said, the God's gift tattoo across the, across the stomach. Uh, you see a guy rolls into the community pool with God's gift tattooed 
across his his abs and i'm not sure you you're going to run over there and want to be friends with the guy you probably uh have a couple of questions that you would like to ask <laughs> before you invite him to your birthday party uh so yeah i mean i can see where we're coming from saying mike perry uh qualifies as a heel even if you haven't seen like the blackface pictures of him on the internet or heard the <clears throat> excuse me the audio of his his cornermen yelling what sounded like racist stuff about uh one of his opponents uh and I and but I think you make a good point that it's different. It seems like we are trafficking in gray areas a little bit with Mike Perry, and it's not as though uh, he's the pharmacist that gets busted for drug dealing, which is sort of what it is if you are a professional fighter who also gets arrested for violent outbursts in your personal life. Right. When there is like, you know, if you dig into to uh, enough pro fighters, you're going to find some people who, you know, while not like openly racist or anything, just believe some things that you don't believe. Or, like, hold some views that you find ludicrous, um, politically or otherwise. Like, that's just going to happen if you're paying close enough attention. Um, but then you get into the question of, like, separating, you know, separating the artist from the art, in a way. Like, can you feel like Mike Perry is probably no one you would like to know or even live next door to? But also be like, when that guy gets in the cage and they sound the air horn and whatever, I'm a fan. I, I really enjoy seeing what he's doing. Or do you need – because I, we've talked before about how Matt Hughes used to be somebody we really enjoyed right. until his turn on The Ultimate Fighter where you got to know Matt Hughes a little bit. And you're like, wow, he does not seem very likable. He does not seem like anybody I would really want to know or hang out with. And then it's harder a little bit to to root for him the same way. Like do you think those two things are tied up? Like if I feel like I want to be a fan of the guy, do I have to be a fan of the guy or can I just be a fan of his fighting? That's a good question that I don't have the answer to. I, I'm going to stick with saying that there's that even removed from all the other stuff that we think we know about him, uh, there's something somewhat off-putting about Mike Perry, the in-the-cage fighter. Okay. Do you want to go with the next question? Sure. This one comes from Brian and T.O. There's been a lot of talk in the MMA world about bringing instant replay review to the UFC. My question to those people is, have you watched a MLB, NBA, or NHL game lately? Replays are excruciating. They are often inconclusive and always ruin the flow of a contest. I, for one, am not eager to sit through a 10-minute delay in a fight just to determine whether or not Abdul Karim Idolov actually kicked Volkan Oldsdemir in the nuts. No thanks. You can kick that shit to the curb. I think this brings up a good point, a larger point, especially as it pertains to MMA. Uh, and he didn't mention the NFL in this uh, in this question, but uh, when it comes to instant replay, NFL games actually are excruciating. But it translates well to uh, to watching the game and tweeting at the same time because you have about a three minute break between every play that you can get your barbs in. You can you can slang your barbs on Twitter and then come back for a second down. I know you like your barbs. Uh, so there is that about instant replay. But one of the things that has always struck me as problematic about instant replay uh, in mixed martial arts, not only that no one wants to th sit through a ten minute delay. Uh, trying to figure out if if random fighter A kicked random fighter B in the nuts, but uh, that causes a serious problem in the flow of your fight. Also, if you're going to take that kind of break to check uh, to check the uh, the instant replay, and I think even though it was a different situation, you saw a little bit of that in the Chris Weidman uh, Dreamcatcher fight uh, from a couple weeks ago. Like once you take that huge break in the action, when and ultimately they decide they're going to call it off. Uh, 
and give the win to Sweet and Sassy and give the loss to Chris Weidman. But by that point, by the point, Dan Mergliotta stops the fight, breaks the flow of the action, and gives everybody like a 10-minute break to stand around. You've already fucked up that fight in a way that almost you can't take back. Okay, true. But I also think that there are instances where it is still the lesser evil to look at the replay, make sure we get the call right, and restart it knowing, like, okay, we have interrupted the flow of this fight. That is regrettable. That is not what we'd want to happen. However, it'd be more regrettable to interrupt the flow and then be like, oh, and we were wrong, and it's just over now, and that's extremely unsatisfying for absolutely everybody. I, I, I mean, I'm sure there are instances where, you know, stopping the fight and interrupting the flow is not going to be the same thing in all right. instances. Sometimes, you know, you'll be throwing a guy a life preserver other times it's just kind of an annoying uh break and a distraction but i do think that there are plenty of opportunities for instant replay and it's not i don't i mean i don't think we need to do it for every little eye poke and groin kick and, and stuff like that um but there are some instances where if the matter of whether this was a fight ending foul or not depends on you know, a, a guy's fingertips grazing the mat whatever the rules are in place of, of where the fight is taking place that's worth making sure we know what we're talking about. on. Yeah, and I'm not saying it can't work, but I guess I am also saying if you are going to have it in mixed martial arts, you better make damn sure that you write the rule uh, pretty clearly and pretty specifically, uh, which is something that does not always happen in this sport. The rules, Rarely happens. The rules are oftentimes uh, not the most clearly written. In fact, I would say even the new rules, like the new uh, downed opponent rule that we were just talking about, uh, is not... I just read it a week or two ago, and it is not that clear, in you fact. Know, it's not, and I I'm, I think we get a question about it later, but uh, when John McCarthy was on MMA Junkie Radio last week and talking about that situation, the Weidman-Sweet and Sassy fight, and talking, it was way more clear to me when he is talking about the intent of the new rule. Like, basically, we're trying to get you to say, if you want to be a downed fighter, uh Use your knee to be a down fighter. Don't try to use your hand because your hand should be protecting your head. Like if you are just trying to, you know, put both hands down on the mat, then you don't have anything to protect your head uh, and you're asking basically to get kneed in the head or something. Right. But right. when you hear the intent, you're like, okay, I feel like that could be communicated one way or another right. to the fighters. Like that basically we just – we don't want you even trying to do anything with your hands as far as making yourself a downed uh, fighter. Right, and the the way that the rule is currently written, it brings up uh, these issues of if you have to have your palms down, if you have to have your fists down, uh, because if that's the case, not that we are once now here relitigating Chris Weidman uh, versus Gegard Mousasi, but like if you have to have your palms down, then Weidman's clearly not down in right. the in that instance. But the way the rule is written, you go look at it. It's just not clear. It's not clear if you have to have your palm on the mat or if they're just talking about hand position. Right. And you're also dealing with the situation of, hey, where are we tonight? Are we right. are we in this are city or are we 100 miles we in... across the border in another state where uh, the rule will be completely different? It just it does nobody any favors. Which is our long-winded way of saying if you're going to have instant replay in MMA, write the damn rule well. Next question this week comes to us from Danny V. 
He writes, I'll keep this short. Thanks, Danny V. But I'm thinking Yoel Romero needs to start campaigning for a fight with Daniel Cormier. He's got the wrestling, the striking, and probably the weight to hang. Why not? He gets a title shot, and for DC, maybe he gets to beat up on one of John Jones's boys. If I'm Yoel, talk all the shit, a la I whipped Kale Sanderson when you couldn't fuck your wrestling. Praise Jesus. Uh, it's a win-win. I'm sure the UFC wins in this one, too, since it's the age of the super fight. Discuss if you will. Uh, Ben, I do not hate this idea. I have to tell you, considering the lay of the land at both middleweight and light heavyweight, I read this and I think, you know what? This makes a certain amount of crazy ass sense. It does. I, I read it and I was trying to poke holes in it in my mind and couldn't really do a great job of it. However, I know you saw this quote coming out of the Fortnite today where Anderson Silva was on the Fortnite they do Daria Hawani and said that he wants to fight UL Romero for the interim title. Again, what is the interim at this point? Um, but if he does not get that fight, says he'll retire. Says he'll go be with his family. And if he now, does get it, he'll die. So we don't have to worry about it either way. <laughs> Are you saying if you're, if you're the UFC and there was an, a real option to make UL Romero versus Daniel Cormier, that you'd tell Anderson Silva, like, all right, well, we hope you enjoy having more time with your family. We're going to go do this instead. Yeah, and that's a weird hardline stance for Anderson Silva to take. And, I, you know, we keep talking about this. I don't know if we talked about it last week or not, but at the time that they booked George St. Pierre versus Michael Bisping, I thought that it was the least desirable of the fights on the table that I thought George St. Pierre could take. And as we get further and further away from the booking of that fight, I feel like it starts to make even less sense because – now, if we're going to piggyback on Danny V's sweet matchmaking idea, why not have Michael Bisping fight one of the plethora of other middleweight contenders who are on the come up, say Bobby Knuckles, for instance, uh, have Yoel Romero fight Anderson or fight Daniel Cormier, which is a thing that we just made up, but sounds, sounds good to me. Uh, hashtag would watch. And why not have Anderson Silva fight fucking George St. Pierre, which is the fight that made sense in the first place. But it's just not what we're going to do, apparently. Yeah, I mean, we can sit around here and make hypothetical great matchups. And we will. All day long. And we will. But I don't think it's going to change much uh, because this seems like the path that the UFC is intent on. Meanwhile, you got a bunch of middleweight contenders sitting around trying to figure out what their lives are going to be like for the next year. Uh, and we're already talking about an interim title because who knows? Like, the words don't mean anything anymore. We just grab another one out of the utility closet. Anderson Silva wants one now. Also, would that not be just terribly sad in a way for Anderson Silva to become like, like to go out there and say like, all right, you say you're going to retire if we don't give you this fight. That's probably a bad idea for you. Fine. We'll give you that fight in Brazil. You probably go out there and get crushed by Yoel Romero, who then becomes interim UFC middleweight champion. Um, or weirder still, you win. And Anderson Silva is the interim yep. UFC middleweight champion, while the real middleweight champion is Michael Bisping. I mean, that's weird. It's crazy. We're off the rails. What kind point. of alternate universe bullshit is that? Well, let, let me let's briefly talk about this actual Yoel Romero question, though, because I would posit. I know Danny V refers to Yoel Romero as one of John Jones's boys in this question because they were both managed by Malki Kawa uh, and apparently both by their supplements at the same shady GNC. Uh, but if you are Yoel Romero and you're kind of sitting around at 39 years old, or did he just turn 40? He just turned either 39 or 40. Yeah. Uh, but you don't have anything on your plate. 
wouldn't you want to, doesn't it make sense for you to challenge the light heavyweight champion if it is Daniel Cormier or if it is John Jones? Because after we have this DC John Jones fight, uh, in July, I believe is when they're trying to have it, uh, after that's over, kind of, unless DC wins and we're going to do a trilogy with John Jones, there aren't a lot of other real scintillating options in the light heavyweight division. And if you're Yoel Romero, uh, and you can bust through the wall like the Kool-Aid man with your scary cookie monster voice, uh, <laughs> it seems like you could make a lot of hay no matter who the light heavyweight champion is. Yeah, I think it's a tougher sell if it's John Jones, just because I think people will look at that one on paper and say John Jones takes Yoel Romero apart. But again, you, you can still make the argument in favor of it based on the lack of better options. I think with Daniel Cormier, it's just more interesting because of like the, the physical realities at work. Like he's a shorter kind of smaller light heavyweight champion. So it it seems more believable. You could put them side by side and it wouldn't, you wouldn't feel like you were making a ridiculous fight between two guys of complete from completely different weight classes. I don't know. I'd be curious to know how you all Romero would, would react to any of this that we've talked him into right now. Uh, hopefully he would ask where the contract is because I feel like we just created a totally sweet alternate universe for Yoel Romero <laughs> to be in. Uh, you know what? Sir Nigel Longstock's here. We're going to do Master Tweet Theater. Uh, it's been a while since we got a chance to catch up with him, uh, so that'll be interesting. And then we'll get back to uh, more listener mail questions after we do that. But we're going to play Master Tweet Theater, and that starts right now. What's that time again? We welcome back friend of the show and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Good day to you, sir. I am beaten but unbroken. I'm sad to hear that you were beaten. I guess glad to hear you're unbroken? Yes, and actually I was fairly badly broken in the process of being beaten. <laughs> well, let's be honest, that was probably an inev- inevitability for you. Uh, I think we all felt like this was long overdue. So what did you bring us this week? Well, sir, I have an exciting slate of tweets from the world of mixed martial arts organized around a theme. I see. And what is that theme? The theme is when the wheels fall off. <laughs> okay. This one, I feel like um, even Sir Nigel is going to accidentally mess around and still manage to get it right just because of what I know about MMA Twitter. We say that every week, though. That's true. That is true. Sir, I assure you that virtually all of these tweets have to do with transportation or widespread collapse. Uh, okay. I'm, I gotta say, I'm excited. I have a lot of anticipation right now. I would be too, were it not for the delauded. Let's begin. <clears throat> this episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Cowboy Astronaut Fun Wraps, the flavored blunt wraps that are definitely not for children. Cowboy Astronaut Fun Wraps come in flavors that only adults appreciate, such as beer, fennel, and teacher's lips. No kid could handle such bold and mature tastes. Don't even try, because if you're a kid and you can smoke Cowboy Astronaut Fun Wraps without throwing up, there's probably something wrong with your birth certificate, and you've been a grown-up all along. Cowboy Astronaut Fun Wraps. Blast off to continued adulthood, continuing to leave childhood behind. I look forward to seeing how expansive the Cowboy Astronaut Empire gets before it's all over. From here to grape flavor. (laughs) Hmm. Tweet the first. A bad attitude is like a flat tire. You can't go anywhere until you change it. 
Okay, so we have kind of a pseudo-inspirational saying here. I'm I'm tempted to go Rich Franklin, although this is not this quote is not attributed to anybody, or should I say misattributed to anybody, which is kind of the the Rich Franklin mo. You have any thoughts here, Chad? Um, it could almost be anyone. I was trying to think of some of the unusual suspects that Sir Nigel has been trying to throw into Master Tweet Theater the last few weeks, but I cannot. So I guess I'll just go Randy Couture. I'm going to go Henzo Gracie, okay, who also likes good. this kind of a tweet. That's both fine guesses, both off-brand versions of Randy Couture, and both wrong. It is Anthony Rumble Johnson. Really? I tricked you. Really, Rumble Johnson? <laughs> mm-hmm. Just go ahead and put Mark Twain or Albert Einstein at the end of that quote. It doesn't matter. Rumble Johnson encouraging you to change your bad attitude, Chad. I guess. Change it. Or hit a lady. Whatever. <laughs> <clears throat> tweet the second. My flight to Austin is overbooked. This could be fun. Fingers crossed. Okay. So this is a very timely tweet with regards to current events. You see what it's referencing, right, Chad? You understand that? About uh, overbooked flights and whatnot? Yes. About yeah, the United throwing people off. Here we have, I'm going to say, probably a professional fight war getting excited about the chance for some unarmed combat with an employee of an airline. But who? Who would be flying to Austin? Should we start there? Eve Edwards. That's that's a good guess. Um, I'm going to go Josh Barnett here. Oh, damn it. That's a good guess. Both fine guesses, both prepared to fight for their seat, and both wrong. And it's Tim Kennedy Ugh. flying to Austin, I assume, before he goes overseas to be in wars and stuff again? Yeah, well, he, he's lived in Austin for a long time, so yeah. Oh, okay. My God, why would you go back? Tim Kennedy has some sick attachment to this country that I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> that is noted. <clears throat> Tweet the third. Yo, Ellen DeGeneres, quit defending blondes. Your ex won't take you back. There's a clue here. This tweet is not directed at Ellen DeGeneres, but at a 15-year-old boy. Wait. Okay. So, what you're telling me is that the tweeter in question is knowingly replying to a 15-year-old boy, knowing full well that it is not Ellen DeGeneres, in an attempt to insult this boy. Correct. It is simply an Ellen DeGeneres-looking motherfucker. Um, who has defended a blonde. Correct. I'm going to say Angela Hill. That's a good guess. That's a really good guess. Uh, due to... The senseless name-calling, I'm going to go UFC President Dana White. Oh. Uh, it is Angela Hill, oh! and your deduction is astounding, <laughs> sir. Is. I don't know if you saw Angela Hill spitting some hot fire at Paige Van Zandt for her kind of self-made Re- Reebok promo, uh, which no, I, I did not. It, got, it got a little weird. You can look up the video for yourself. And then, if you an Ellen DeGeneres-looking motherfucker and you're trying to pop off at Angela Hill... Well, you've just walked right into that one. Ellen DeGeneres has been mad at girls who look like Paige Van Zandt for a long time. <laughs> Tweet the fourth. Politics is the means for men without principles to direct men without memory. Voltaire. Rich Franklin. <laughs> God, I feel like we I pulled the trigger on that too early in this episode of Master Tweet Theater. Uh, I'm going to circle back and go uh, Randy Couture again, just for the position move. Not bad. Not a bad choice. Because I am an old softy, 
Would it change your guesses if I told you the original tweet was in French? What? I Wait. translated it. <laughs> Wait a minute, you son of a bitch. Okay, now you got to read it in French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Le politique is uh, the means for a man without the principle. I, I did not write down the French version, sir. Well, then now, that, I mean, it could be uh, Francis Ngannou. It could be George St. Pierre. I'm going to go... Tommy Dukes. I'm going to go uh, Francis Carmont, Frankie Cars. Oh, okay, that's... Frenchman I hadn't even thought of. I'll go Francis and Ganu here. Both fine guesses, both liable to speak French, and both wrong. It is Czech Congo. Czech okay. Congo. Putting on his architect glasses to peruse Voltaire. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Is Tesla Motors the next big thing? That's it? That's it. Okay, now that I remember that the theme here was wheels fall off what happened in tweet the fourth uh tweet the fourth was the general breakdown of political economy all right man all right um, <laughs> metaphor sir is text tesla motors the next big thing tweeted this this week not just this year <laughs> i'm gonna say maybe the poet philip baroni that's i was gonna go poet philip baroni here also it is not. Oh. It is Tito Ortiz. Oh, man. <laughs> Maybe this Tesla thing is going to catch on. <laughs> well, I can't call it an unsuccessful edition of Master Tweet Theater. I guess technically it happened. So there's that. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should mention that, sir. I've just finished shooting on an exciting project about the personification of death who journeys to Earth in the form of a young Martin Lawrence and travels back to medieval times. I see. And what's it called? It's called Meet Joe Black Knight. <laughs> and what role do you play? I play old, inexplicably white Martin Lawrence. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstaff. Thank you, sir. This one comes to us from Ross from Ohio. Uh, he writes, I was reading Ben's Trading Shots piece last night. Hey, thanks for reading, Ross. Shameless plug. And he mentioned the benefits of a fighter's organization driving the changes when it comes to testing, meaning drug testing. That got me thinking. I have not heard any new updates on the various MMA fighters' organizations in quite some time now. Did they die off as a result of suing each other? Are they going strong, just lurking beneath the surface? As you two seem to have your fingers on the pulse of the MMA world, what have you heard? Please discourse this. Nothing. Well, the <laughs> the one that seems to me like it, we can kind of forget about it, uh, is the the Bjorn Rebney backs George. Yeah, the MMA. Uh, that one popped up really suddenly and then kind of quickly faded. And you see now with George St. Pierre back in the UFC fold, you don't hear him talking about it a whole right. lot anymore. You don't hear Donald Cerrone talking about it after. He backed out basically the day after the uh, press conference to be like, whoa, I didn't know what I was getting into when I signed up for this lengthy press conference about an athlete association. And on top of that, you got Tim Kennedy, who seemed like he was the most driven and maybe the most legitimately dedicated to this organization, uh, now signing up to go back into the military. So, uh, yeah, he's probably got other concerns. That leaves the ma 
kind of dead as far as I'm concerned. Right. Um, however, the other one that's been suing the UFC for a while, where you got uh, you know, the guys, uh, John Fitch and Nate Quarry and all those guys, uh, and that one... That one seems like the the slow train with the best chances of success. How you know, and I did uh, a story on that uh, a while back, kind of just looking at what they want, how they hope to accomplish it, and you know, they those guys won't lie to you and say that they expect to have that done anytime soon. You know, it's already it's been a long process just in court, um, and everybody filing their motions and and uh, the discovery of. Thousands of pages of documents, all that kind of stuff. So even that one, through that that court process, was always going to be an extremely slow process. Uh, and that is kind of the difficult selling point to a lot of the fighters is by telling them like, "Hey, get on board with this." And when they ask, "Okay, when do you expect to actually like have some kind of collective bargaining agreement or whatever with the UFC?" And the only honest answer is, "No time soon." Like. Even if you you form the organization and you really got a ton of people behind it right now, um, that could still be a long battle. And like if you look at how long it was for the NFL Players Association, you know it was like a decade worth of stuff just to get anywhere. So that I think is the the hard sell for anybody right now. But I think that one is still the best chance you've got of seeing some kind of fighters organization come up come about. Next question this week from Beeston, 25.8. He writes, the recent layoffs at ESPN have the sports world buzzing. Thankfully, Brett Okamoto was spared. However, several high-profile names were cut. Uh, this move has just about everything, everyone admitting that ESPN has overpaid for several sports licensing fees. And it seems clear uh, that while live sports are still valuable, they aren't exactly priceless. What does this mean for the UFC's next TV deal? ESPN... Uh, is seemingly out of the bidding, and surely executives at other media conglomerates see the consequences of overpaying for TV rights. Where does the UFC go from here? If the UFC signs another seven-year TV deal, uh, people who are teenagers now will be in their 20s by the end of the deal. So a long-term deal carries a lot of risk for any network with the prospect uh, of cable as an industry looking grim. I understand the programming that people will actually watch on a Saturday night is appealing. However, I also can't imagine Farmers Only has a very big advertising budget. Uh, there's also a 4B loan to pay off, $4 billion loan to pay off. Uh, discuss, please. Uh, ben, I'd personally like to think that I was kind of a trendsetter in the whole getting laid off by ESPN field. Oh, yeah? Because I did that years ago. Way before it was cool. Way before it was cool. Uh, but this is a good question and an interesting question. And you know that when WME IMG bought the UFC last July that a big part of the additional revenue that it thought it could create – was going to come from signing the next UFC broadcast television deal after the deal with Fox lapses, I believe, at the end of next year. Uh, Hoping for like a threefold increase. Right. From, I believe that's $100 million right now, and they wanted to go to three or $400 million a year. Uh, and the, the current lay of the land, as Beast in 25, eight points out, is not good for those prospects. Although I think that Fox probably has some. Uh, you know, has has some reason to want to get the UFC back, but uh, it doesn't seem to me, as we as we look from the outside in, that we're going to have this enormous four hundred million dollar television rights deal that the UFC was hoping to land. Yeah, I do think though that there's an argument to be made. Like, 
you know, when you talk about what's going on with ESPN right now and how much they've been hurt just by people, the their approach to how they watch TV is changing. Right. Uh, you know, the, the cord cutting trend. Um, and when you look at like what subscri- cable subscribers pay per person basically for each one of these channels, um, and ESPN was getting in a huge slice of that yeah, pie. Yeah, it's like the most expensive one. Yeah. Um, but ESPN also, you know, it wasn't just like ESPN was like, hey, you, you got rights to the NBA and that's what screwed you. I mean, it was a bunch of little things too that the, that ESPN was trying to do, just like trying for an enormous reach. It wasn't necessarily like going for one sport that did it. So I still think you can make a case to somebody, whether it's ESPN or somebody else, that the UFC is going to be a valuable thing to have on TV because right. you need something that's going to keep people coming to TV. And, you know, like SportsCenter is not going to do it just because the way people get sports highlights, social media and stuff like that has changed that. Uh, you know, you're going to have to have, though, like when you get something like the UFC, you have almost total control of an entire sport. Um, and so that's a big deal. If you could have a little more influence with what they give to you uh, and what they put on pay-per-view so that you don't just get leftovers, uh, which is one of the things that I've seen pop up a bunch in the what people expect to be part of the negotiations when they sign a new TV deal. Like, I think you could still make a strong case. However, is it going to be $450 uh, million? That, I don't know so much anymore. And if yeah. you remove ESPN uh, from the pool of bidders, you know, everybody else realizes that the pool has gotten a lot smaller, too. So that that this doesn't exactly help your stance if you're the UFC. Right. And I don't know if these layoffs mean that we should take ESPN completely out of the uh, out of the bidding process or if I don't know if ESPN was going to make a move for the UFC or not. But uh, I don't necessarily know that these layoffs explicitly mean that the UFC or that ESPN will not make a play for the for the UFC. But I also think just and I didn't I'm just spitballing here. Because I'm not an indus- television industry insider, but like to me, the 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 channel that has the will have the most impetus to sign the UFC is probably still Fox. That Fox, unless the deal has gone sour between the two parties, which is entirely possible, since the UFC's deals with everyone seem to go south after a certain amount of time. But Fox now has the programming on the channels. They know what it can do on Fox Sports One. Uh, they know that they can have it three or four times a year on the Fox network. And if you're Fox and you can think that, that, you know, maybe for 250 million or 200 million, you can essentially keep vertical control over almost an an entire sport, basically have the exclusive broadcasting rights to nearly an entire sport. uh, And you will still have a plethora, a great deal of programming to, to stock Fox sports one and Fox sports two with, because if you take the UFC off those, you know, uh, fledgling sports channels. I don't know what you got. Yeah, that's Fox. That's the argument for me in favor of Fox holding on to it is because what's left when right. you take away? You got to have something on Fox Sports One. It can't just be local New York sports talk radio all the time. You just can't have Mike Francesca on there talking about the New York Mets bullpen situation for 15 minutes on. Which end. I know you love. I know you love that. Uh, next question here comes from John Gray. What is the secret sauce balance of depth and parity to make an ideal division? Think about the men's flyweight, low depth, low parity, versus men's middleweight, high depth, high parity. Does, does the desired balance change based on the perspective you take, fan, fighter, promoter? Please cogitate and pontificate. That is an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I think the secret sauce to having uh, a great division is is to have a division that is around the size of normal dudes, Right. 
because the reason that you don't have a very deep heavyweight division is not only are there not very many dudes that size, but if you are an athlete who is that size, you can go do other stuff. Whereas if you are a 170-pound man who's not good enough to play baseball or or play in the NFL, uh, and yet you are a high school wrestler, maybe that UFC lightweight division starts looking a little bit better. I don't know. Uh, but above and beyond that, it's an interesting question. I just think that we have... I don't think it's an accident, I will say, that the most competitive and talent-rich divisions are also right in the sweet spot of the average size of of the modern man. Yeah, we'll see. But then you get into this, the variable of which perspective you take, because, uh, which I think is a good point, because I think if, if you think about it from the fan's perspective, lightweight is kind of a dream. You know, like there's always been good lightweights pretty much in MMA. Like you seem to never run out of them. Uh, and there's enough of them that there is some variety in personality and fighting style as well, which I think is uh, another thing, like another tweak I would make to this formula is not just depth and parity, but that it's not all the same type of fighter or the same type of guy uh, in those divisions. Like you have kind of like a real range uh, to choose from, and that makes for a lot more interesting matchups and like interesting pairings that you can put together there. Uh, and yet, if you're a promoter, Lightweight has not been the ideal. I mean, it's the ideal for like filling out cards because there's always tons of lightweights. Right. It might be an ideal for like contract negotiations because you feel like there's plenty of them. Uh, but it hasn't been like a home run in terms of pay-per-view sales or anything, you know, except for like guys like Conor McGregor coming out of nowhere and he can fight wherever and he's a huge pay-per-view draw. You know, like heavyweight has been a much bigger draw for fans, even though there aren't that many of them, and you see a lot of uniformity there. Yeah, for a promoter, I think it's it's probably all about that personality, right? Because we've seen various divisions come and go as uh, legitimate draws. You know, when George St. Pierre was the welterweight champion for years and years, uh, you look at the pay-per-view numbers, and it, it sure seems like it kind of didn't really matter who George St. Pierre was going to fight. He was just going to go out there and sell you between 600 and 800,000 pay-per-views every single time. Uh, and that probably made the welterweight division quite uh, attractive to UFC matchmakers. And you're right about the heavyweight division, that even though it's been a dumpster fire since its inception, uh, people like to watch big dudes throw them hands. And so uh, it, it remains marketable, even though uh, uh, it's not the the deepest or the the most talent-rich division out there. And then, of course, for years and years, we considered the light heavyweight division to be the glamour division of the UFC because that's where Randy Couture was and Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz uh, and and all of their great rivalries all kind of rolled into one. Uh, and now that we've had John Jones out of, out of action for a while and Daniel Cormier has been trying to uh, carry it by himself it, and you have a, a, a pronounced lack of depth at 205, you feel like that division has kind of taken a step back. So it seems from a promoter standpoint like it would be based very much around individual talent rather than around like depth of field or anything like that. Uh, and as long as that individual talent doesn't nab your belt and run off to Ireland to play footsie with Floyd Mayweather, you're probably happy to just have one dude who could sell you a bunch of pay-per-views. Fair point. 
Uh, next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He writes, praise the MMA gods for Big John McCarthy. He is a competent, comforting presence in the sport, and I want him at all my barbecues. During his appearance on MMA Junkie Radio, he broke down modern weight cutting, and it reminded me that rather than despair and blaming the fighters who fuck it up, looking at you, Nermi, or hope Big John, or hope Big John will change the system from the inside, someone actually has done something different, and it appears to have been a success. One FC quietly changed the game years ago. Uh, since then, they've held 17 events under restructured weight class, weight classes and the new walking weight rules. Ben Askren has had nothing snarky to say about it, and that dude loves a good chance at snark. Has the system been a big enough success, or has no one cared because that promotion is out of the spotlight? Will it take a weight-cutting death like Yang Bing in the UFC for a similar change to happen? Yeah, that's a good question, and especially because... It seems like people love to complain about weight cutting and point to it as a source of danger and kind of recognize that that is a huge risk that we kind of just take for granted as a part of this sport. And yet doing something about it has proven kind of tricky. I mean, you see in California, they're trying to do a little bit more about it. Um, 1FC's rules definitely are a little more aggressive in doing stuff about it. The one thing I would wonder about 1FC's rules is do you just get into a Slightly different version of the same question we've had about uh, the USADA drug program. Like, is it too invasive a thing in people's lives um, for a bunch of independent contractors hoping to fight? I mean, I, I don't know. But it does seem like we've said before, you, you would need a broad cultural change rather than just trying to convince people, stop putting yourselves at risk right. and jeopardizing your health this way over and over again. Um, and so I guess if you are going to do it through rules, it would need to be really vast, kind of all-encompassing rules. Yeah, and that's hard to impose when you've got this giant, uh, not only state-by-state -state athletic commission mishmash going on, and a sport that, while only 25 years old or whatever, uh, is still pretty entrenched in its own little world in terms of how it does stuff. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like... Just to take the state athletic commissions out of the equation for a minute, you would have to have like a top-down restructuring from the UFC, uh, because that's the only thing that would that would change it for everybody under that banner in a way that would be meaningful. And goddamn, that would be awfully hard to do right now for the company to just or any entity for that matter, government or otherwise, to just walk in and suddenly change all the weight cutting rules. Well, you're gonna have to not only reformat the weight classes, but redistribute the titles and, and figure out who could be fighting in which weight class. And maybe Daniel Cormier and John Jones aren't even in the same weight class anymore. Uh, right. Well, and like the thing we've talked about before, like when the UFC put out uh, like its guidelines for where it wanted people to be during fight week. Uh, and then the question always becomes, oh yeah, well, what if they're not? Like at what point do you pull the plug on about like, can you see the UFC adding more barriers to the fights actually happening right. <laughs> uh, when that's been such a huge problem. And, like, you know, you look at 1FC's rules and it's something like, okay, so if the guy is more than 3% uh, away five weeks out, like, what do you do? Do you tell him that the bout is scrapped? Do you, you know, do you have to keep reshuffling the, the deck? Because, man, go ahead and tell Sean Shelby that now not only do you have to worry about, like, injuries and, and all the usual stuff, but now you also have to worry about that like several weeks out somebody is going to uh have their weight too high from where it needs to be at the 3 week point right. and now you got to like you know throw everything into disarray trying to find that guy a new opponent uh it's hard to see the UFC making life harder on itself right. that and way on top of all that go and tell Conor McGregor where he needs to be 5 weeks out and see what he says 
see if you're going to cancel Conor McGregor's fight because he's 3.8% body fat or body weight away from where he needs to be. Uh, it just seems like, again, you know, kind of like instant replay, like we talked about earlier, we all agree that weight cutting is a problem. We all agree that, that gosh darn it, something should be done about it. But once you get in and start trying to figure out something that would actually be workable in the real world, all of these issues turn out to be somewhat thornier than you expect. True. Um, this next one comes from Rusty from Atlanta. I know I'm a few weeks late on this topic. Can we talk about Louis Smolka for a minute? It kind of bums me out to see how he was such a high prospect to becoming what seems like a fizzling bust. He's dropped the last three to Hobo Dominic Cruz, Ray Borg, and your boy Assassin Baby. Previous to that, he had stellar fights with Ben Wynn and Patty Houlihan. He had a great mid-card run in the flyweight division, but seems to hit a wall, obviously. Would this sum up the, the majority of the division, in your opinion? There seem to be guys who get ahead of steam, but then plateau. With the exception of Joseph Benavidez and Mighty Mouse himself, no one in the top five has a winning streak past three fights. What gives? Hobo Dominic Cruz is Tim Elliott? Yeah. Is that what we're... I mean... I like it. You look at a, you look at a picture of him, and I can't say it doesn't apply. Yeah, I mean, I'm into it. And I think you're right about Louis Smolka, who at this point, he's still only 25 years old, so it's not like you're dealing with lost property here, but he sure did, uh, come into the UFC and, and, and go five and one and, and did have a head of steam and then, uh, ran into this tough end of 2016, uh, to 2017, spring of 2017 now has lost three in a row. Uh, and it's not like you're going to look at the dude and say he's done, but at the same time, he, he has hit a significant roadblock. Uh, but you know what? And then he was a, a fairly highly touted prospect, so it is notable. But at the same time, sometimes in MMA, I feel like we discount the, the what should be fairly obvious notion of like ability. You know what I mean? Like certain people only have the ability to become so good. I don't think that I could be the UFC light heavyweight champion, for example, if I, jumped into the sport even if well, i not even, with that attitude even if i trained my hardest and had the best coaches wait you're not training your hardest right now <laughs> yeah i'm training like i'm trying to get in shape so i can get in shape you know what i'm saying <laughs> rashad evans style uh i think one thing that you can't discount sometimes is the psychological factor too that like lewis smoko talked about it i think after his loss to brandon moreno like that, that one was kind of a surprising loss at the time because right you know, well he got caught in a choke right really early right and like brandon moreno was kind of seen as kind of a dude out of nowhere at the time uh he had that lewis smoko had that four fight winning streak going on and he talked about the kind of depression that followed that and diving to the bottom of a bottle there for a little while and i can see how something like that especially in a sport like mma might snowball a little bit and if you see him from those fights from brandon moreno to ray borg to especially this last one against tim elliott where he looks just kind of uninspired and when it started going against him uh you know it was still a fun fight and there were a lot of fun back and forth um but you, he started to get that kind of look on his face like i know i'm going to lose this fight and when he's standing there waiting for the decision to be announced you know you can see it on his face that that he knows which way it's going and I can see how that kind of stuff in your mind, when you start to get into that mode of like, well, I can't go out here and lose another one. That's a very different place from I'm going to go out there and knock this guy's head off. And uh, like confidence matters so much in, in a sport like this, you know, the same way it does in like baseball or something, something where there's a lot of time to sit around and think about it beforehand. Right. Um, I can see how you can get on a bad run and it might make it look to everybody like you're just absolutely done and there's no hope for you. But 
that might not be the case if you can sort that out. Yeah, and it's just so unbelievably physically grueling, right? Like the 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 most of the grind that we don't see in between fights in terms of staying in shape and doing your fight camp uh must be so physically taxing that I can imagine uh it would be hard to really put your entire heart and soul into it if you were plagued by any kind of doubts, right? Yeah. Like it's pretty hard for normal people to just go to the gym and, you know, spend 30 minutes on the treadmill without you know, missing a day or right. bailing after 10 minutes or whatever. Uh, not that I'm speaking from experience or anything <laughs> on that. Uh, but just like imagine what those, these professional athletes have to go through. It's that times a million. Uh, and it's not just like, you know, you had a bad morning at the office, so you can't, you can't focus on the treadmill for 30 minutes. Yeah. Plus, if you're dealing with nagging injuries that you don't have a chance to let heal because you got to keep fighting to keep getting paid, especially if, if you're losing, then you're getting half the paycheck you planned on. Uh, that means you probably feel a little bit more financial pressure to hurry up and get back in there, and you can't, you know, afford to take a year off to let yourself heal all the time. Right. Ability, though. I'm just saying. I think we have this uh, we have this opinion in this sport that's like, oh, this guy just needs to tra- change his camp or change his coaches, change his weight class. What you're saying is he, sh- he should just admit that he's not ever going to be the best. Well, I'm not. I'm not. He should just admit that. I'm he's not sucks. saying that about Lewis Smolka either. I'm just saying in general, like, not everybody is going to win the title. It just well, doesn't happen. You know what? Although maybe everybody you, thinks they're about to win the title. Maybe if know. you changed your gym, we could get you into that light heavyweight title picture, Chad. I'm going to think about it. I'll think it over. Next question this week comes from Tom in Liverpool. He writes, since shit isn't likely to go on again this week, I just wanted to get your thoughts on something that's on my mind. It's to do, oh, this is very British already. It's to do with championship belts and their significance. As a retired fighter, would you look back on your career and judge it on the titles won, or would you place a greater significance on the performances you had? At a time when many divisions are held up for glamour fights, with returning legends getting the nod over more deserving contenders because they won't get enough people to tune in and spend money to watch them, does it really matter who holds the belt? Question mark. Have the interim titles been handed out like a motherfucking participation trophy to create buzz to sell understrength Brazilian... Okay, I don't know what we're doing here. Um... Um, okay, but I, I see the question. Yes. I think. And yeah. I think it's a good question. Yeah. Is just we should have stopped after the second paragraph. True. Um like how how would you, if you were a fighter, look back and rate your career? Like would you do it the same way fans like to do it? Like, hey, did you win the title? How many times did you defend the title? Where do you stand among the in the record books kind of thing? Um and you know, I've I had a conversation similar to this uh not too long ago with Julie Kedzie where I I said something about somebody, I, I, you know, I don't know who it was, but something about, like, that it looked like this was a bad career choice for that person. Like, that losses and beatings and injuries and stuff seemed to be piling up for them, uh, and that it seemed like this was something that they, they should consider doing something else, because um, clearly they were never going to be the champion, and they were just going to get hurt a bunch uh, the longer they stayed in it. And Julie said something like, you know, and it was sharply worded on her part, but, you know, fair that, that basically like, or maybe they're thinking about this as like a journey that they're on, uh, and they will prize the experiences that they gained from it, like both in the fights and in the training room and the friends they made in it and the, uh, the things they learned from it and the, the strength that it gave them as a person, uh, to, form themselves into this and to go out there and test themselves. And I thought, that's true. That is something that I had forgotten to take into the equation here, which is really easy for us to do on the outside. To just right. kind of be like, they must be in it for titles and money. Right. That's the only reason to do this kind of thing. And that for, like, forgetting that, 
you know, for pretty much all of them, the thing that got them started was not like a cold analysis of the cash that was to be made uh, from punching other people in the face, but it was an like an interest in the martial arts to yeah. one degree or another, whether it was high school wrestling or strip mall karate studios or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something. You know, they they were doing it for themselves at the start of it, um, and then it became like a dream that they were chasing. And it's easy to forget that. And especially, like, we should be able to remember. I mean, as as writers, we know plenty of people who are out there who are, you know, plugging away as writers. And even, like, people who are really, really good, and you know them, um, but they don't sell a ton of books. They're never going to be Stephen King. Why don't they quit? You know, why don't they just give up? Uh, and yet you forget because that's what they want to do with their life. That's the thing that they found that they want to do that would make them the happiest or at least prevent them from going insane. Um, so why not let them do it? Yeah, you know who who I think is interesting, I'm just going to throw out as an example just just by way of saying, you know, the way that we view this sport and the way fighters view themselves and the way fighters view other fighters is oftentimes very different is a guy like Mike Pyle. Uh, right, who yeah. is, is at this point 41 years old and... Uh, you know, you would probably look at him from the outside looking in and be like, well, UFC journeyman, right? 27, 13 and one is his professional record. He is one and four in his last five fights in the UFC. But if you talk to actual professional fighters and particularly anyone who was around the extreme couture gym when Pyle was there, they will to a man and woman, every single one of them be like, he's one of the best fighters and toughest people in the world yeah. because he has that reputation. And, and, you know, as a coach and a trainer and a, uh, an athlete that, that is just that good. And for whatever reason, he never found ultimate success inside the cage. But people in the industry, actual fighters, look at a guy like that and, and, and maybe respect him more than almost anyone else. True. Which is, you know, you wouldn't think that if you just didn't, if you just didn't know, I guess. Yeah. Right. And yeah. And I, it would be a shame to me if I heard that Mike Pyle thought of his career as a failure just because he never became a UFC champion. You know, right. you would think that's crazy of you. Like, you, you have definitely had an impact in this sport and been somebody in it. Um, yeah. And just that, that respect of your peers kind of thing, even if, uh, the average fan doesn't look at you as, uh, achieving what they assume would be the only reasons to get in this sport. You want to do this Nick Wren question about Ally Aquinta? Sure. It's just one down from uh, I see where it. we were. Uh, is it possible in this bizarre this bizarre world of MMA that quote-unquote disgruntled ally Aquinta is playing his cards exactly right by publicly and continuously insulting Dana, the UFC, and Reebok, pausing only to concede that Reebok makes some nice stuff? Given that Al might be the most discourse subject in MMA media on the message boards this week, is it possible that the UFC will see this and recognize the marketability of allowing themselves to play the heel? I'm guessing that many fighters in this situation would be punished for this by being offered only unfavorable matchups for their next few fights, but disgruntled is good enough at this fisticuffs thing that giving him tough opponents in the two fights he has left on his contract could very well backfire. It wouldn't be shocking to see Al soundly defeat two of the UFC's top lightweights and then enter free agency. One has to think there is a possibility that the UFC would like that even less than they like being told to go fuck themselves, having the very valid criticisms of the Reebok deal stated publicly over and over by one of their top fighters, and even having his new nickname be disgruntled. Please discourse. You know, I was just thinking about this yesterday. Uh, not necessarily whether or not the UFC will jump on board with it, because I don't know if it will or not. It certainly doesn't have a history of doing that with... Despite many opportunities to right, do that. Right, in, when, in it's like company-athlete relations. But I was thinking about how it is kind of ironic that uh, Ally Aquinta is currently surging 
on the highest wave of popularity and notoriety that he has received at any point during his MMA career by doing this raging Al Iaquinta wants to quit the UFC thing that he's doing. Uh, and I think that that could work for him. Like I personally am way more interested in him now than I would have been if he had never gone public with his, uh, you know, qualms with the company and how he was treated and stuff like that. So whether or not the UFC will jump on board with it, I have no idea. Uh, but I think in, in a weird way, it is, even though it's not a marketing gimmick, I think it, it is a useful marketing gimmick for, for Ally Aquinta. Here's the question I've often wondered when these situations have arisen before. Uh, how would we know if the UFC was jumping on board with it? Like, would it be, because if you're going to play this, you know, stone cold Steve Austin versus Vince McMahon dynamic, um, which I think is a very relatable dynamic. A lot of people can relate to feeling like their workplace sucks and their boss is a jerk. Yes. And like, they'll, they'll easily latch on to that. But then what would the UFC have to do in order to participate in it? Because you don't want to be like, yeah, that's right. Tell us to go fuck ourselves some more. Cause that kind of deflates the balloon a little bit. Um, you don't want to be like comic bookish or like too WWE about playing that up. Like you don't want to have Dana White um, going on there and like kind of engaging in some fake feud with Ally Kingdom because I think people will spot the the inauthenticity of that and that will kind of ruin it. Like is the best thing the UFC can do here is to just kind of like not really punish him, not try to like silence him um, and just kind of sit there and take it. Yeah, I mean, yes, but I also think in addition to that, the UFC could just not ignore it in its, like, promotional, uh, you know, in what it does to promote his fights and on the broadcast and stuff like that, because that's what the UFC typically does in situations like this. Not that it will do it to Ally Quinta, I don't know, but what it would historically do would be ignore this situation entirely as it, you know, as it pertains to what it says on its own company-controlled broadcast and then feed him to someone who will destroy him so that he just is kind of lost to history as this guy who lost a fight on TV or whatever. Uh, and I have long said, not just about this situation, but about uh, lots of situations in the UFC, that is that I think that it could make more public relations, hey, if it just simply, like, dealt with those situations honestly on its own TV shows, uh, and not necessarily that if it wants to invite, you know, bad press on itself, but I think you could more successfully promote Ally Quinta on, on your fleet of of, uh, of shows and, and formats. If like, you just asked him about it, dealt with it, talk to him about it. Like don't, didn't just merely don't pretend like it's a thing that's not happening. And, and like the people will almost certainly do the rest, especially in this sport. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think though that for us, if you ask us, when is the time when you would not like to see the UFC be more honest and, uh, like direct in its dealings with on the UFC broadcast talking about what's really going on. Like we would always want that. Right. We want that in every situation. Like how the way the UFC has at times, you know, want to shy away from mentioning drug test failures or uh, other, you know, out of the cage problems that certain guys have. They, you know, they want to present a certain narrative when they get up there. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's my imagination, but I feel like there has been a, a slow crawl toward improvement in that in some regard, especially when I listen to like Brian Stan talk, I feel like I feel a little more confident that he's going to actually be talking about what we're all thinking about these guys and not just the UFC narrative. No, I agree. I agree. And I think that, uh, 
just the, the honesty I think is uh underrated in terms of uh <laughs> promoting your event. Anyway, uh we're almost out of time here. You got a short one or anything over there you want to do or uh um here's one from Martin Galfin. Man, would I love to see Con Air Bud. Which movie starring Sir Nigel Longstock would you like to see the most? If none, how about a tip for the well-rounded fight fan? Chad, I looked this up. I don't know if you remember when, because at first I was like, how am I supposed to remember these movies? The minute he says them, they're gone from my brain. But remember when uh, Journalist of the Year, Suzanne Davis, put together a spreadsheet for us about the history of Master Tweet Theater. Yes, yeah. And it included all of Sir Nigel's uh, films and roles. Uh, my favorite of which is still On the Roadhouse, uh, <laughs> in which he plays Kung Fu Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> Oh. Also, though, uh, a pretty good one, Raging Bull Durham, in which he plays a young Susan Sarandon. Hmm. Uh, unless you have, no, no, perhaps you have a tip for the well-rounded fight. Well, fan. I was going to say we could probably do a dual tip for the well-rounded fight fan if we talk about Crime Town. Yes. The uh, podcast that, which I thought I brought up on the show once before, but maybe I, I didn't, but a, uh, a wildly entertaining podcast from Gimlet Media that's out right now, journeying into the underworld of organized crime in Providence, Rhode Island, is called Crime Town. Uh, it's a little bit lighter in terms of uh, subject matter than some of the other podcasts that I've re recommended on this show. People get mad at me because they say I keep recommending podcasts where kids get killed. Uh, and while Crime Town is certainly about organized crime and, and violence and stuff like that, uh, it's it's a pretty fun listen, the way that they do it. Well, and the... The quality of the reporting and everything is really expansive. And uh, needless to say, there are a lot of uh, interesting characters that come out of the Providence organized crime scene. And hearing them interviewed uh, now, a lot of them with just like alarming frankness about the things that they've done and the lives that they lived uh, is really just fascinating. And they're like half hour episodes, too. So it's not like you're sitting there, you know, buckled in for a two and a half hour epic every time you turn it on. Um but, yeah, I just binged a whole bunch of them, and they're great. So check out Crime Town from Gimlet Media. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to look ahead to UFC 211 uh, and, and talk about all the stuff that's going to go down there. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Look at this spreadsheet, though. There are some weeks when you can tell that it's a such as uh, regarding the game. Uh, <laughs>